0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the fallout of Brexit, the discovery of the Franklin Expedition, and strippers, and why we don't see as much of them as we used to, sort of. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, yesterday, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson asked the Queen and got permission to suspend Parliament, proroguing government. Uh, a lot of people get upset about this, although again, in Canada, happened, I think, four times under Harper, did happened four times under the Liberals with Jean Chrétien, so it certainly is something that does happen in our system. Let's bring in Dr. Andrew Glencross, Senior Lecturer at Department of Politics and International Relations, uh, Aston University and. Birmingham, and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
1: Good to speak to you on something less complicated than education policy.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, Andrew, your thoughts. Uh, what are the reasons for uh, Boris Johnson proroguing government the way he did?
1: So it's a gamble, and his gamble is that the EU, for its part, doesn't take the UK seriously because There's always been the option so far for Parliament to reject a no-deal option. So if you suspend Parliament temporarily, this prorogation gambit, then you can reduce the chances that Parliament says no to a no-deal exit from the EU, and that puts further pressure on the EU to start showing some flexibility towards the demands that Boris Johnson has formulated to them recently.
0: Uh, Obviously, there has been a logjam for a couple of years here. Will this break it?
1: Well, it's certainly a move that Theresa May didn't try to accomplish, because it also, you could say, puts the Queen in an awkward position, because it's something that she's obliged to do because it comes at the request of her Prime Minister. But it's the kind of thing that you read about in books about the French Revolution or the prelude to the English Civil War. Or Parliament in a British context is quite a scary thought.
0: And that is to uh, suspend any sort of chatter, any sort of debate on this whatsoever. What happens when this is over?
1: When it's over, well, we're going to have a few days before and certainly a few days after this very important meeting of the heads of state and government of the European Union, the so-called European Council. That's going to meet basically in late October. And at that point, we're going to know whether there's going to be some kind of tweak to the deal that Theresa May had agreed, and then Parliament will be really up against it in terms of either having to accept that deal or leaving the European Union with nothing.
0: Had Boris Johnson not pro-ro government, how would that have changed things? What would we, what would we be talking about today?
1: We would have less pressure in the next week or so when parliament reconvenes less pressure to try and actually force his hand there would have been more in a sense time more time for um, getting the opposition to mobilize and act together in a cross-party fashion and so we would be in a sense playing the waiting game still so in many ways this is actually news that is positive because it forces the opposition to really show whether it's credible to actually Start trying to constrain the government to do not do what it um, thinks is the worst option, which is leaving without a deal.
0: How can the opposition position themselves uh, when this at least does seem to be doing something? At least it's breaking that logjam. At least it seems to be moving forward.
1: That's true. And there's a lot of problem because the leader of the biggest opposition party, then Labour, under Jeremy Corbyn, has a difficult relationship with his own part within his own party, about his own preferences, about what to do about leaving the European Union. So it's not clear how credible he is as a figure who can actually step in and gather people from different sides of Parliament, also mobilise the electorate outside Parliament, and try to get momentum to have a vote of confidence, no confidence in the government, which is ultimately the only way really to actually bring down the Johnson administration and stop in its tracks, any um, process towards no deal.
0: How is the UK reacting to this? Are they just as divided as they've always been in regard to Brexit?
1: It depends on which way you want to look at it. The people who are emotionally invested on one side or the other think either this is a great new tactic or else it's, the beginning of a Boris dictatorship. So the answer is really somewhere in the middle. It's something that hasn't been tried and it's also something that a lot of people are also finally tuning out of because it just gets too complicated. The emotional investment that you need to actually follow these things, it's just, it's just too big at the end of the day because we are three years on from the referendum.
0: Uh, is uh, is anyone relieved that at least something's happening and something seems to be moving, at least it appears to be?
1: Well, I think Boris Johnson is counting on that, and there's certainly been a small Boris bounce in the opinion polls. But, of course, it doesn't look so great if you are the party of business, the party of stable governance, if you are suspending Parliament in order to try and get your policies So on that basis, it's not clear what the opinion polls will actually say about the popularity of this decision. So there's really a lot to play for. But of course, it hasn't been tried before in this context.
0: Does this provide at least short-term stability?
1: Not necessarily, because it really accelerates the calendar in the next week or so when Parliament does actually meet again after its summer recess to try and pull the plug on the government itself with a vote of no confidence or else to start playing around with motions that the Speaker will probably allow, because he seems to be very annoyed about this whole prorogation. The Speaker will allow certain motions that can be amended that would then perhaps force the government to tie its hands to avoid a no deal. So it is moving
0: things forward. How is the EU viewing this? Is there any chance that they'll renegotiate any part of this deal?
1: It consistently, the EU leaders have consistently said, doesn't change anything, that nothing would change the situation. And I think that's the only credible way to read that, because suspending Parliament, when you had a referendum campaign before that talked a lot about taking back control, regaining parliamentary sovereignty away from the EU, this is, from an EU perspective, a bit of a desperate-sounding measure. And, of course, if you start waiting just until the October European Council There's not a lot of days before the deadline of the 31st of October comes around. So the EU is still in the stronger position here.
0: So it looks like uh, the UK will will leave without a deal. Is that accurate? Is that the way people are viewing it at this point?
1: I would say there's more than a 50% chance of no deal, because even if there's some kind of fudge about the so-called Northern Irish backstop at this meeting in October, I think Boris's prorogation has probably encouraged the people who are the most against leaving with a deal that includes some kind of transition where EU laws would still apply for a limited period. These are the kind of conservative backbenchers and voters who really want the hardest of exits. And I think they won't be satisfied if that's the tweaked deal on the table. And therefore, Parliament won't be able to get that deal over the line.
0: So what happens if, in fact, the U.K. leaves and there is no deal? What does that mean for the economy? What does it mean for the U.K. moving forward?
1: Well, it means the U.K. politically won't move forward because it will still eventually have to start resuming some kind of talks with the E.U. about trade, about security, about all the things that have been discussed for the past three years. So the
0: negotiation just keeps going on then?
1: That negotiation would, and then you would still need also to have some good relations with the EU and individual EU countries at the UN, for instance, and the World Trade Organization. So that world wouldn't stop. That negotiation and that permanent dialogue would continue, but we'd be further removed from a final settlement. We'd be further removed from stability for business, for families who want to move between one country and and another. So all these things would still be played out in real time.
0: Um, Why didn't Theresa May use this? Why didn't you try this?
1: Well, she tried, in a sense, the lighter version, which was to really confront parliamentarians with the deadline of a no deal, thinking that that alone would be enough. So Boris has really turned the screw even further by actually removing parliamentary time to try and actually put in a delay, which is ultimately what Theresa May was forced to live with twice. So he is really ramping up her own methods.
0: So what is his long-term, Boris Johnson's long-term goal here? Is his long-term goal to leave the UK without a Brexit deal, or is it to somehow make sure one gets hammered in or hammered out before uh, they actually uh, leave? Or is it something else? Is it it a completely new option that we haven't even thought about?
1: Well, I think we have to think about whether we are going to say this is Boris, the career politician who's out for himself to actually be in power, or whether this is Boris, a statesman-like figure akin to Churchill that he allegedly reveres. I mean, if it's Boris, someone who's just interested in holding on to power, then a no deal allows him still to hold on to power. But would it allow him to win another election, an election in his own right? Possibly not. So I think he wants to balance these two things out, and he knows that the Tories got hammered in the polls when Theresa May agreed to these extensions. So he wants to minimize that risk from happening again by really creating conditions where he thinks parliament especially those on his own bench is will actually vote for a deal so i think he's conscious about balancing these two elements
0: it seems not manage it though it it seems within those two elements it seems within the eu and what he's dealing with back home he's almost saying okay this is going to happen is this what you want are you ready for this or uh, does someone pull a rabbit out of their hat And, I mean, I don't know, is that another referendum? Is that some sort of new EU deal that supersedes all of this? Well, the EU
1: has said since the second extension that Theresa May was forced to accept that there won't be further extensions without there being a very good reason. So that would be another election or a referendum. And it's not clear, though, that that's the kind of thing that Boris wants, except to the degree that he has perrode Parliament ostensibly for trying to put forward a new Queen's speech where you will have lots of policy agendas dealing with domestic priorities, and that could be used for a new election.
0: What about a, uh, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm saying this from a layman's point of view, but could this end up into a brand new deal for the EU instead of the UK Uh, trying to leave the EU, somehow the EU coming up with a plan, a policy, guidelines, uh, 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 in order to make it palatable for everyone who's within the EU, including the UK and them staying, whether it's decentralizing the government, giving them more power. Is there any way, is it easier to remodel the EU than it is to to, to try to remodel Brexit?
1: That's a tough one because... You could say that's what david cameron tried to do he had a plan for renegotiating the uk relationship with the eu which was very much couched initially on the basis of saying let's reform the eu for the good of every member state and that really got nowhere to the degree that voters in the uk seem to want an extra special deal extra special treatment and people like macron in france Merkel in germany they've always been clear that they don't want a deal which gives preferential treatment to one country rather than another. So that kind of option is just not on the cards.
0: However, now we are where we are. Uh, Is that the card that Boris Johnson is trying to play? Look where we're going to end up on both sides. Nobody's going to be happy. Is it time to renegotiate this whole thing?
1: He... Might look, It might sound like that on the surface, but at the same time, if you read some of the European press recently when he had his meetings at the G7 in Biarritz, including, obviously, with um, Trudeau, then he seemed to come across, according to some of the European reports, as conscious that the UK would have to compromise and accept a deal mostly along the lines of what Theresa May had negotiated. So actually, he might be much less fierce in private with his EU counterparts than he sounds in public to a British audience.
0: What? Uh, h- how do you see uh, the rest of the summer and between now and Halloween going?
1: Yeah, well, Halloween is going to be extra scary, I think, this year <laughs> in the British context. And I think we'll know a lot more about that in the next week or so, about just how much will be worried about the clock ticking down to a no deal because if there's going to be an opposition move against the kind of strategy that Boris Johnson seems to be adopting, it has to come sooner rather than later now. You can't wait, as with under Theresa May, till the very last minute.
0: Dr. Andrew Glencross has been with us, Senior Lecturer, Department of Polit- uh, Politics and International Relations, Aston University, Birmingham. Andrew, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. If you're watching your uh, your news last night, your local news, you saw some pretty interesting shots of uh, the HMS Terror. Uh, this all part of the Franklin Expedition and ex- an exploration of the interior is offering some incredible underwater images uh, for the rest of us to enjoy and of course give historians something to chew on as we figure out uh, try to figure out uh, all the different angles to this mystery which I think with more discovery there are more questions. Let's bring in Anthony Wilson-Smith, Historica Canada and is with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Amazing story. Uh, It really is. Give us a quick
0: history lesson. Tell us about the Franklin Expedition.
2: Well, I mean, they went off to see uh, they, they were uh, they were mapping parts of coast, of course, of North America, well, of Canada ultimately Canada, that had never been done before. That was part of it. The British Royal Navy, of course, was the single greatest navy in the world, with arguably the you know the greatest sailors on it. They went off on expeditions of two or three years. It was headed by Sir John Franklin, who was regarded as one of their finest naval officers. He was also a colonial governor and had done a bunch of expeditions before. Um, you know, and of course, the big thing to remember is there was no radio then. I mean, there was no anything. You sent somebody off, said good luck with all that, and we hope to see you in about two or three years. Yeah. So um, you know, they essentially just got you know they got caught in nasty weather conditions. They made the decision to abandon um, and went off, but none of that was known. Uh, the ship was then lost. Um, I guess uh, you know after they took off, Franklin died. This was 1845. They left a couple of years later. Uh, Franklin and the crew went. We know they ultimately starved to death, but we didn't know their fate for a long time. And really, if you want a modern-day comparison, I'd guess I'd say it would be like the disappearance of the Air Malaysia flight a couple of years back. You know, mm. it just seemed to have vanished from the face of the earth for more than 150 years. When did we start to understand what had happened? Well, you know, it's fascinating, and this is a great tribute to the importance of indigenous and Inuit history that right from the outset, in 1854, nine years, you know, about yeah, or eight years after this happened. There was, uh, you know, a young Inuit uh, resident somewhere around the area gave a description to John Ray, who was one of the people looking for them, and said, gave a very good description of a group of white sailors, you know, described them, who had starved to death in a certain area. And right down through the years, there continued to be stories in Inuit communities passed around of these people who had appeared in roughly where they were. And in the end, it turned out that the descriptions that they had offered were pretty much on the money for, you know, had they been followed much earlier, they would have been found much earlier.
0: How difficult were these wreckages to find
2: oh, I mean we 're you know, only finally found in two thousand and sixteen because we have the kind of equipment we do now you know, radar, sonar, the ability to dive much deeper, the ability to take icebreakers into areas where they hadn 't been before I mean really, you know for uh, as I said, for more than a century and a half. The efforts to find them had never stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, we think we looked for the Titanic for a long time. Well, th- these were ships were not as big as the Titanic, but it went on all that much more. And there were stories done. There's even a uh, you know, an interesting series on American television a couple of years ago, which posited that there'd been a, some sort of alien force involved in their <laughs> disappearance. Uh, what did we learn from their voyage? Well, that's what, you know, in large measure, that's part of why this is so important right now, We know they abandoned. Why did they abandon? You know, they left behind food. How did the ship sink? What was the reason for that? There's still, when you look at those remarkable videos, you know, you see bottles unbroken, dishes Mm. done. There's presumably food that was fine until it went down in there. In other words, you would think that to tough it out, if they could have, they had the supplies to keep them going for months and to presume that summer would have brought something better. So, you know, a lot of what they're looking for is the answers, and there's even the hope that because the wreck is so well-preserved, it's not even really a wreck, that there may be drawers where the water didn't get in, and they may be able to find files in the captain's uh, cabin where they haven't been able to get yet that could shed further light. Unbelievable. Um, So your thoughts when
0: you saw the images that we all saw yesterday?
2: Oh, you know, it's fine. I mean, history is it never really goes away. It's just, you know, we can reach out and touch the past in this. It also gives us a much better sense of... um, of, you know, if we can get through this, of how people lived then, uh, or, how you know, how the greatest uh, you know, Navy in the world functioned. Um, you know, we're already getting ideas of how crew sat and, you know, different configurations of tables, where the officers were, everything else. It's the mother load for people interested in the era.
0: You talked about the, the abundance of supplies still on these wrecks. Uh, why would they have left?
2: Well, that's the thing. That's part of what we need answered. I mean, it seems to me, you know, use the parallel on land, You find yourself, you're lost in the wilderness. You find a cabin that's got all sorts of foodstuffs and protection from the outside. Well, I don't know about you, but if you're me, you batten down the hatches and you stay there and you just keep figuring, I hope someone's looking for me and going to find me. Now, the other thing, again, to remember is the lack of communication they would have known about. So one of the cases may be that they were sitting there and saying, you know, it's 1846. We've got enough supplies, even if if we have enough for the next year, they're not even going to start thinking about us for another couple of years. It wasn't until 1848 that the British Admiralty started saying, we got a problem here. We don't know. You know we haven't heard from them, mm. and we should have. So they may have been kind of counting the clock on that.
0: Talk about uh, what goes in, into such uh, a discovery, uh, the robotics involved. Uh, how, how difficult was it to find these wrecks?
2: Oh, enormously. Again, you know, you're talking about hundreds, if not square, thousands of kilometers. They had to follow hints. That, you know, They had to follow these clues and presume they were right. They were working off documents. There had been, you know, the widow of Franklin commissioned three searches of her own just using private money that she had in the 10 years after with no luck. And that was at a point where they knew the course. Everything was still fresh. All the documents were around. So, you're, you know, in, in some of the most difficult weather conditions in the world, as I said, you need the icebreakers to get through you need the equipment to be able to get down low for you know until recent decades you couldn't get the subs down or you didn't you know divers didn't have the equipment to get down and take the video cameras and the other things that were needed for this so it's you know it's a triumph of technology for sure and man as well
0: what does what does the location of these wrecks suggest does that reveal anything
2: well i mean they were you know they were getting to where they needed to go in terms of exploring, Um, you know, they just, they got caught in the ice. And I guess they just, you know. So they were on the right track. Yeah. I mean, there was no, you know, the thing is, there was no there, there to get to. In other words, it wasn't like, (laughs) you know, we're going to show up and here's a sign saying you've now arrived. (laughs) It was about charting this and saying, let's get some mapping down. Um, You know, let's get a better sense of what's out there. So you just, you kind of keep going and, you know, so you can keep mapping, keep mapping, keep mapping, and then, um, but you can never get used to weather conditions changing the way they will up there.
0: Uh, talk about what they have discovered there so far. Um, I was watching bits of this last night and, and they said that doors were open that allowed these, these robotic uh, cameras to go inside and circle around, but not so much uh, certain corridors. Tell, tell us about what we did see and what we haven't seen yet.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, what we've seen is just remarkable for, you know, for a striking sense of what was. I mean, you can see unbroken dishes that are still in cabinets that actually still retain their original colors. Again, you can see the ships uh, you know, I referred to earlier, the tables where people sat, and based on the size and the sort of luxury, relative luxury of the tables, you can tell what was for the officers, what was for, you know, the regular sailors or equivalent of enlisted. There are, again, there are bottles, presumably of wine and otherwise, perhaps of scotch or something that are still... Um, still sitting there unbroken. But the the holy grail where they haven't yet been able to get to because of just various difficulties in is the captain's cabin. And, of course, the captain's cabin, which is, you know, it may be one of the most well-preserved, is where there's a good chance he would have kept his diaries Mm. and, you know, and personal reflections. So, first of all, perhaps lining up as to when they realized they had a problem, how that what solutions they potentially discussed you know do we get out do we stay here do we think other ships will come what's the state of the men how quickly they started to be affected by by illness including you know just paranoia yeah. the weather will do to you there in other words how quickly everything started to fall apart and you know and everything became frayed
0: what, what are your thoughts on, you know, you talked about dishes, and I mean, as you said, you saw plates that are still up in racks and, and, and bottles that hadn't been broken. We just assume that this would be a violent end. Does this suggest that it sank quite slowly and gently?
2: Yeah, it would. It's much like, you know, I mean, we so we know the Titanic was in pieces, and it was remarkable what survived. Well, this has been, you know, has been much more, again. Now, now we know, you know, again, to go back, we know that um, after a so number of deaths that there were 105 men on record for having abandoned the ships and setting up camp, uh, you know, where they then died, mostly starved to death. So we know there was a kind of a controlled departure from there. But you presume that once the elements get hold, I would have presumed once the elements up that far up north got a hold of a ship or anything else that was not natural to there, that either competing glaciers running into them or something yeah. would just take it apart. That didn't happen.
0: So, uh, what are the chances, uh, you, you, you talked about going into uh, the captain's quarters and such, what are the chances of finding written documents still preserved? I mean, well,
2: you know, to be honest, uh, looking at reports on this in the last couple of days, I've been startled by that because you would think that, uh, you know, I, I guess we're presuming that there would be waterproof cases of a sort that they would have kept on some eventuality because... Yeah, again, paper would be among the first things to be ruined, but there seems to be, you know, there's at least a hope of that if they were locked away in cabinets that were, you know, carefully enough kept. After all, the diary and any mapping would have been among the most important things that they would have had with them by definition. Any maps, anything else, would they, you know, if any maps survived, if those were on some form of, of uh, oiled canvas, for example, would they have been charting where they went? Would that provide further insight as well?
0: So what's next with this? Uh, is it obviously they want to try to get into certain areas which they can't now? Uh, how long does this continue? What about
2: recovery? Well, I don't. You know, I think that the sense, my sense, is I understand, and I haven't checked this lately, is so the, the, the properties are now shared. Britain formally owned the ships, turned over control to the government, which in turn recognized inuit territory and the contribution of the inuk people in finding this so there's a kind of a co-ownership thing there they will keep uh, you know they'll make sure this does not you know at least in the near future become an open diving spot for people i think generally that wrecks are treated more as memorials to those who died with them by the way they did not find any bodies on there and that was one of the things i guess they would have been unsure of but there's no evidence that anybody went down with the ship so they'll keep diving during the time that uh... You know, conditions allow which is obviously a limited window in the far north i would mm-hmm. imagine there will be other expeditions next year when it allows um, it's a federal government parks canada dive i'd also remember as a guy at one charity, i would i would really flag the efforts of uh... of the Canadian Canadian Geographic Society, which has been all over this, and they've done really great work on this and charted it as well, too. What is the
0: UK's response to this?
2: Well, they, you know, they, of course, wanted to know what happened to their ship. They've done the sort of the right thing, meaning... You know, technically they could have said, hey, this is all ours. It still belongs to us. You know, there was no Canada at that point, and it was Royal Navy. They did not, you know, they have not done that. I haven't, I can't recall whether there are relatives of Franklin still alive today. Um, I think quite likely, if memory serves, I think that there are. Um, But, you know, he was... um, he had left you know we know when he perished roughly we know some artifacts were found over the years i was talking about the Enoch earlier one of the things that convinced this uh, fellow john ray looking for them that they were on the level was that um he actually found some you know they actually had some things that were left like some i think it was cutlery or otherwise uh silverware and franklin's royal hanoverian yeah i just royal franklin's royal hanoverian order as well so
0: We've seen uh, recent shots of the Titanic and reports have said that it is deteriorating. Uh, Is that a worry here with these?
2: Over time, it will be. And, you know, I think we have to view that, um, I guess, you know, a changing environment may be causing that. But really, it's, you know, it's kind of like, well, I guess we all go to ashes in the end, you know. It's it's an inevitable fate for something. It's better preserved, of course, in the ice cold waters of the far north. That's very good for preservation. Um, and I think that uh, at the level that it's at, there may be less pressure on it. But sure, over time, you know, it will. I would imagine it'll suffer the same fate. I'm not an expert on that, but I, based on other ships that we know, wreckage that we know about,
0: will we see pieces of it brought to the surface? Will we see some of those artifacts brought up?
2: I would imagine, based on. You you know the Robert Ballard expedition on uh, on Titanic they were very respectful but they did bring up pieces you know to show that I wouldn't be surprised if they decide to bring a few. The value of doing, you don't like to disturb a wreck to any great extent, but the value of it is that when you can show those things around, there's a better understanding for people of what really was lost, you know. The, when you see something and know, here's a dish that someone ate off, here's where men went who later died on this expedition, you understand the human cost, the sense of adventure, the scope of it all that much better, and that's a win for everybody.
0: So obviously there's still a lot of exploration to do. There's still a lot of questions that need answers.
2: Oh, very much. I mean, uh, this is not just about recapturing a piece of yesterday. It's about, you know, it's really understanding conditions there, greater insight. Uh, well, and it is also, I mean, about understanding our past, meaning Canada's past, how that, part of, you know, how that part of our country and that part of the world functioned, and how people reacted against the elements, which continues to be a challenge to this day. Are we as
0: Canadians excited about this sort of discovery?
2: I think so. I, you know, I mean, look, I'm a history guy, right? So I just, I do. But I have to believe on this, that, that this it's pretty, gets, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it gets to the little kid in everybody. And I've heard oh, yeah. a lot of people say that, you know, we all grow up hearing of, it could be pirates and adventure, or it could be something, but the lost world out there, you know, the past that we don't know about coming back to greet us. I mean, there's just a mystique to it that's hard to, hard to match. Give us a bit of a
0: timeline. When will we know more about this? When will we, uh, is this something that we're going to be experiencing for years to come?
2: Yeah, I think probably because there are certain times of the year that are optimal for dives in those conditions and certain times of the year when it's just plain impossible and still madness to try something up there. So you probably figure that, but this time next year they'll be putting people further down. I haven't checked today to see what the forecasts are, whether there's more that could come up in in the next couple of days as well. They're going to want to do more analysis. Analysis beyond the video they have in hand of data that they will have captured captured too, so I think we're probably good you know we may be good for the next couple of weeks, but yeah, years to come for sure
0: I'm just looking at pictures now and there seems to be a series of bottles and 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 stuff that you could gather how they how do they decide what to leave and what to take
2: well, I think you know beyond the obvious let's you know let's bring something up because it's in good condition it's what will help you. So this is a hypothetical here and again, you know, not being a scientist I can't say but if you were able to bring up a bottle can you, you know, does that, ha- that's still full, does that help you to, uh, you know, to w- evaluate the pressures that, you know, that prevented the bottle from bursting? If you then decide you're going to go inside to see if, you know, to open the bottle to see if, there's st- if the wine is still there, or the, you know, or the scotch is still preserved, does that help you again in understanding what conditions were around there? Um, they can weigh in the same way that you do carbon dating or tree dating. You know, you can look at a lot of these things and say, well, if the pressure was this, it might have exploded. If it was this, mm. it would have pushed the, the outside of the boat into itself. You know, so we know more about that.
0: Fascinating. Uh, it'd be interesting if they brought one of those bottles up and uncorked it and someone said, Hey, you know, this is pretty good.
2: <laughs> you could do you could do pretty well on eBay by that, but I don't
0: think that'll happen. No, I don't think so. Anthony Wilson Smith has been with us from Historica Canada talking about the exploration and discovery of the Franklin expedition. Anthony, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My appreciate pleasure. It. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, The last strip club in the lower city is closing. Hamilton Strip closing its doors by the end of the month. Uh, The industry apparently is dying. To talk more about all of this, Marina Adshade is with us, Vancouver School of Economics, University of British Columbia, and is with us now. Marina, thanks for the call. Much appreciated.
3: Oh, my pleasure.
0: So is this industry dying?
3: Yeah, in Canada, for sure, the industry is dying from coast to coast. Uh, I'm in Vancouver, you know, and at one point in time, just the city of Vancouver had 22 strip clubs. There's four or five at the moment, um, but there is across the whole province, there's probably only about seven more clubs. And at one point in time, all the towns had clubs, all the towns had multiple clubs. Uh, This is an industry that's just seen its last days uh, in this country anyway. Um, it's it, this summer, it actually seems to be the summer of the strip club, because we've had a number of closures you know, all, across the Canada, uh, all across Canada. So it's been a, an interesting topic of conversation.
0: Uh, you, you talked about Canada. What about other countries?
3: So um, in the U.S., the strip clubs are doing a little bit better than they're doing here. Um, they seem to have seen, in some places, they've had a little bit of a renaissance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because they found new ways to do the strip club. Um, like, for example... In Canada, the strip clubs seem to be places that aren't particularly welcoming for women. And I think one of the issues that the strip club owners are having is that young people, you know, people at the age of 35, when they go out, they go with groups of friends that are different genders. um, And so they're not necessarily going to want to go to a strip club. Of course, some do. Uh, But, you know, in the States, they're creating clubs where people, everybody wants to go. and, And I think that that's... A smart move, and it's making it possible for those clubs to continue. We don't see that as much here.
0: So, what are they doing differently in the United States? How is it a a different experience?
3: Well, I'll give you one example. There's a strip club in um, North Carolina. They were trying to. They were. They noticed there was a big drop off in their younger clientele, and so what they did is they took one of their VIP rooms and they turned it into a gaming room. They took out the pole and better whatever was in there before. And they put in uh, gaming consoles, and they put in lounge chairs, and now guys go in there and they play video games. And they pay $300 an hour to have an attractive, scantily clad woman playing video games with them. Um, So they're kind of revolutionizing for the new age. Not so much here. Uh,
0: So why is this dying? Why is it on the decline, do you think?
3: So no, there's, I mean, in Hamilton, I, it seems like the reason this last club is shutting down is because of the price of real estate uh, and you know the sh- and the demand for, for housing. I think we're seeing that in other places too. But the industry isn't isn't particularly lucrative anymore because there are substitutes to going to strip clubs that are cheaper or more appealing. Uh, particularly in a time where people are drinking and driving like they used to, uh, people are can stay at home. Um, they can watch cam girls. Uh, who are performing just for them. Mm. Actually, this is one of the things the clubs are doing in the U.S. is they're setting up cameras into the clubs, and guys can stay at home. They can watch the, the dancers in the clubs. They pay a fee for that service um, because, you know, then they they, they can do it at, at home and not travel anywhere.
0: So obviously technology has played a big part on this.
3: Technology is definitely pe- playing a big part in it, you know, it's uh, it's not just the cam girls. I don't know if your listeners are that familiar with the way the cam girls work, um, but the, the way there's there's literally hundreds of thousands of cam girls online where people pay small amounts of money, um, and the girls and the, and guys there to perform, um, and, and so they get a lot more specialized service. Uh, it's also too that in Canada they've they've ex- with the exception of Quebec. In a lot of provinces, they really restricted what the dancers can do. Um, and when they restricted what the dancers can do, it really cut into the market because it didn't become, wasn't as entertaining as it was in the past. And on the other side, the dancers didn't make as much money as they used to make.
0: So really, like any industry, technology has played a big part in this. It's, it's almost the uberization of the strip industry.
3: Uh, cam girls are definitely the uberization of the, the strip industry. And then what's really interesting is that there's almost no cost, from a labor perspective, there's almost no cost to entering it. Right. Anybody with a laptop can be a cam girl. That's all you need. Um, a laptop that has a, a built-in in camera. Um, also, too, you know, dancing continues to be a highly stigmatized activity. And the thing about doing it online is it's much easier to hide Um, And so for some of the dancers, that's preferable as well. And plus, you know, international, we're getting international competition because a lot of these cam girls are actually, you know, they're in the Czech Republic, they're in the Ukraine, they come from low-income countries, they will will work for lower wages than will Canadian workers.
0: You talked about a renaissance happening in the United States. Do you see that happening uh, in Canada? Or is it, is it a case of less of a renaissance and more of a redefinition? You, you've got to reinvent this thing.
3: Yeah, I think that I don't see that happening here. I think that this is really sputtering out in this country, and I, I don't see it coming back in its current form. Um, you know, one of the things that they're doing, the way they're redefining it in the U.S., is it a lot of states are bringing labor laws that give the dancers more protections? Um, so in Canada, the, the workers don't have any of the same protections that you would have for other employees. Um, states like California are passing laws requiring them to the dancers to be employees, to have benefits, to be protected by things like workman's compensation. It's actually a surprisingly dangerous job. Um, dancers get hurt all of the time. Mm. Uh, and, and so in order to really to, to have that renaissance in this country, I think we would have to completely re envisage the business model. And it's not clear to me that the people who are actually in this industry, who are owning these clubs, which, you know, in Vancouver, is a lot of them are owned by the Hells Angels.
2: Mm-hmm. I believe that
3: four out of the five clubs are owned by the Hells Angels. Um, and so it's not... It, they're just not re-envisaging themselves in, the, in, in the, the same business model. But there are clubs in the States, like in Miami, that I would definitely go to, you know, that has more of a nightclub atmosphere, that has multiple stages, it has mixed gender groups, and, and so on.
2: Uh,
3: it would have, require
0: a different, a different approach. A different experience, yeah. Uh, Me yeah. Too movement play a role in all of this?
3: Um, it's not clear that it is, would be playing, um, much of a role in this. I mean, the, I, the dancers are so unprotected in the clubs. I don't know that people who, who patronize these clubs um, realize how unprotected they are. Uh, there's been a lot of pressure in Ontario over the last few years, um, along, among the associations of strip clubs, to allow foreign workers to come in. And I think part of that is that the foreign workers don't set the same standards for their own treatment. Um, they just don't have the same ability to set those standards as do the domestic workers, so it's possible there's something in there, but i'm I'm not sure it is. I guess the one thing that where me too might be having an effect is if in the past business people would go to strip clubs to entertain clients that you really can't do anymore Um, and that actually is probably seen very much as a me too issue so it's part of that but i feel like that side of the industry died out a few years ago because you just don't hear about it as much as you used to maybe 10 20 years ago
0: uh you talked about uh business models and the people that are running them is there any interest in people who aren't in those sorts of organizations running these places or is it sooner or later they're all infiltrated by them
3: yeah, I, I don't really know. I think that there's part of the, and and this is just purely speculation on my part, is that I think one of the reasons why the clubs are being run by gangs is that the clubs are serving other purposes. Now, this is no disrespect to people who own clubs. There are legitimate business owners who are running these clubs, and I'm not saying that they're all laundering money or, or anything like that, but I think there is an element of that. Um, Where the clubs aren't very profitable because they're serving other purposes, that's keeping them afloat a little bit longer than they might have otherwise.
0: Has technology put this back in the bedroom?
3: Yes, technology is putting this back in the bedroom, is putting it on people's personal phones, um, and it's just making it a lot easier for them to access these things. And also, too, I think that we're doing other things now with our time. I think that going back to the the treasure club in North Carolina that put in the gaming room. I think that it's not just technology that is sex. I think it's also technology that is online gaming, online communities, um, you know, online social networking that is that that is affecting these these
0: clubs what about just our attitude uh, our attitudes about sex and and you know the way it was it was funny looking at some of the old pictures of uh you know the old club in hamilton and and, and some of the black and whites and such uh, how much of this is just the attitude on sex is changing it's not what you know it's it's not the um, what's the word i'm looking for it, it's 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 not as uh, uh hidden as it once was so these are not really an option or sorry uh, a novelty anymore
3: well, you know, that's that's an interesting question because you know, I mean, the the openness of sexuality in some ways peaked in the 80s and 90s, so I don't think it's that. In fact, if anything, the current generation is actually less sexual than they were. I don't know how old you are, but when I was a teenager and when I was a, in university, um, you know. In back in the 80s and 90s, there was more hooking up. There was more casual sex than there is now. So I'm not sure that's it. But I do think that the current genera- generation doesn't really prioritize it the way that uh, previous generations do. And that's an entirely separate conversation. Um, so I think that, that that change would have happened before. And, you know, the clubs had, were they in the 1980s and 1990s, these clubs were going extremely well. Um, so I don't think it would be that
0: uh, but if it's everywhere, what makes it unique? You know, I mean, if we could, like you said, if we can see it everywhere, then you know, it's not like what's going on behind the black curtain anymore.
3: Yeah, but you know, I mean, the clubs never made money on the dancers on the stage. Yeah, right. Though um, that was never where the money is. That's not where the money is for the dancers as well. All the money is made in the lap dances and in the VIP rooms. And so it's not really just a matter of seeing it everywhere, and like I said, that you know the current generation of young people and, and older people too—they're not having as much casual sex as they were uh, ten, twenty years ago. Um, so I don't think that they're getting that elsewhere. So I think we've had a, a general shift away from making this, you know, a priority, and, and maybe people just don't see it as you know, part of their status anymore, that they way that they used to.
0: Uh, or like anything uh, in in the retail industry, bricks and mortar may be a thing of the past, and, and this is more of an online issue now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, especially as real estate um, increases in value over time. It's, it's unsurprising that in a market like Vancouver or in markets like Toronto, it's difficult for these clubs to keep going, um, you know, because there are way more lucrative things to do with those properties, You know, in Vancouver, they're putting dispensaries like crazy and condos. And, you know, we're not even, never mind strip clubs. We can barely keep our supermarkets open uh, because of the price of real estate.
0: All right. uh, Marina Adshade has been with us. Vancouver School of Economics, University of British Columbia, talking about strip clubs and uh, the slow decline over the years. Marina, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, we're going to bring in uh, Chelsea. Uh, we should just call her Chelsea. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, former worker at Hamilton Strip. And we were going to try to get her on last segment, but unfortunately got some wires crossed. Uh, she is with us now. Chelsea, how are you?
4: I'm great. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. When did you work there? What did you do?
4: Uh, I danced there from 18 to 26. I want to say like 2001 ish was the beginning of that. Um as a single mom, just looking to survive.
0: So tell us about the experience. What's it like to do this?
4: Well, my first day walking in the doors of the old hand-or-hands, I remember stopping with my backpack, taking a deep gulp, and being quite petrified. Um, but, you know, very soon afterwards, I found my comfort zone and was just feeling like an alive young woman, exploring my, you know, eroticism and learning how to be... Um, self-sufficient, and that was an exciting experience for me.
0: Uh, So for you, it was a positive experience?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was raised by a very strong woman who taught me where to draw my own moral lines and how to set boundaries around my environment. So I knew how to keep myself feeling good.
0: Uh, What about your safety? Did you ever feel unsafe?
4: Never. 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 Now, there are obviously elements of the industry that are, are very scary,
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, but it really is about young women who are incredibly naive and don't have the support systems that they need. Lucky for me, I really wasn't overly naive when I started. So for the girls who, who need a bit more support systems than there are available right now, mm-hmm. you know, I would, I'd like to see more things put in place rather than just trying to abolish the you know, spaces for us to have livelihoods, right?
0: Are you surprised that the industry is, is taking the direction that it is? It seems to be subsiding.
4: Um, I mean, I can't say I'm surprised because it's, it's happened so gradually for such a long period of time now. I'm, I'm more than used to it at this point. But I am surprised at what I'm kind of looking to coin the era of censorship. It's almost like, and, and I just heard the tail end of the other fellow who was just on talking about how it's just too difficult to operate
0: with yeah. any business. Too many regulation, case. yeah.
4: Yeah, and I totally agree. Right now there's this rampant thing going on where, like, if you just use the hashtag stripper, which like is not an illegal word. <laughs> yeah. um, you're having your, your all your content taken down. So I have a healthy food business, and I of course have hashtag words that represent you know why I'm motivated to stay fit and healthy naturally. And I've actually had content taken down because of this sort of like sex worker movement censorship that's happening. So it's it's really it's hurting a lot of people in a lot of different
0: industries. Is there a better way to do this business? Of course there is. Is there a better I mean, model? Every-
4: of course there is. Every other industry has a labor standard, right? So why can't we have one? And now the city would say that there is one and that they try to uphold it and they hand out fines and all this kind of stuff. But who's driving what that structure looks like? The workers aren't. Right. Uh, you know? We know what the customers want to do. <laughs> and we know what we need as support systems. And, and no one's interested in hearing what that is. And that's the problem.
0: Talk about the stigma. Is there a stigma? You talk about the hashtag stripper and such. What doesn't the public realize about this business?
4: Well, the public realizes a facet of it. You know, everything the public believes about this industry is true to a certain extent. But there's also a lot of positivity and there's a lot greater depth to it than anybody really recognizes. And that's where I'm frustrated and, and why I jokingly use the coin turbo stripper. A lot of people will say things like, oh, you're such a well-rounded, articulated young woman. You know, so you're so much more than a stripper. You don't have to call yourself that. And I hear a lot of things like that, right? And I say, well, well no, but I am a stripper, like big time. I think about it night and day, all the many facets involved in, in, in what's involved just on my day to day. And uh, it's allowed me to have a beautiful life and have a beautiful experience being a mom and that's a big thing you know like you've got a lot of young women out there in the world in um you know situations where they have children and displaced relationships and they need somewhere to go and work you know daycare is unaffordable for even you know two parents almost these days sometimes you know structures need to be put in place so that people can survive right
0: and you're still working
4: yeah i'm still working i quit many times over the years you know for um relationships where people made me feel that I needed to prove I was, you know, better than that. And I I was drinking the stigma Kool-Aid like everybody else is. Mm. And you know what? It's okay that they feel that way because they just don't know any better. And that's like any subject, right? So if you don't have firsthand experience, you've never heard about the positivities, how can you believe anything about that? So it's fair enough, right? Um, But over the years, I I would quit and I would have, like, dreams about work trips. And and I would call my girlfriends and say, like, God, I'm still dreaming about work. Like, do I need therapy?
0: So you love it. You (laughs) like it. Yeah, you love it
4: it, yeah. I love it
0: so what much. is it it's about so it wonderful. you love what is it about it you love
4: um i love the i don't only-
0: think i've ever interviewed a stripper before now that i think about <laughs> it
4: <laughs> most people don't bother
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad i did now what what is it about <laughs> it you love
4: I love being able to um, interact in such an intimate space with hundreds of thousands of people. I don't think people really think about that. Like, I've hugged 100,000 people and heard about what's going on in their life and why they're feeling whatever they're feeling um, that's motivated them to come in and just find some kind space with a stranger. And those are really beautiful moments that people don't acknowledge or think about. And yes, there's alcohol and drugs involved and some people are partying and there's butt smacking and laugh dancing happening to some degree. But that's not the only thing that's happening and that's what the public doesn't realize and that's where i've um, found an element of like nourishment and and so obviously you know being able to travel and be independent and make my own hours so that i can you know freestyle my parenting at will those are all incredible bonuses but what's also really great is I get to stay fit. I'm dancing and being physical all the time, which has obviously maintained me at, you know, I'm 37 now. Still being able to stand next to the 20-year-old dancers, no problem. Um, so that challenge physically on a day-to-day basis in any type of career is wonderful, right? And for me, I'm not, uh, I'm not overly um, interested in monogamy in my own personal relationships. I don't have any religious background. I really, none of that makes sense to me. I've got a quirky little polyamorous tattoo um, and so, um, I really like the fact that I've got this restricted, um, area where like not more than a dance is happening, you know? So when I say dance, I do nude contact dancing. So I, I will let people touch my breath and my bum. I'm very comfortable with that. When I get off work, I have my shower any of my relationships um, realize that it's shower time, I just got off work, like in any other work, you're sweaty and stinky. <laughs> and and I'm very comfortable with that. I don't let people push me around and proceed to act like they deserve anything beyond that. And I've been really lucky to not be influenced by what's been happening over the past, I'd say, 10 years, um, in particular in Ontario, um, where it's become very socially acceptable and cool to be, quote-unquote, turning tricks, calling your customers tricks, and, and just living up to... That sort of, uh, I'm going down the rap music road and I don't want to because now I definitely feel like an old person. And I grew up on 90s rap. So Mm. (laughs) I'm being a big big hypocrite right now. But that has something to do with it because our music affects our culture. So like he was saying earlier, you know, people aren't going to dance clubs anymore. And, you know, I think that's because the the right music's not being played Mm. to get the uh, older couples out of their homes and wanting to go out. Because that music has left the building.
0: Last question. How do you explain this to your family, your kids? What do they say?
4: Uh, My daughter is going to be 22 shortly. I told her two years ago um, with the release of this book, I was in Rock, Paper, Sex. I used that um, confession to to explain it all the way I did to somebody who wasn't my child. Because I felt that she was an adult and she was ready to hear who I really was as a woman exterior to being her mom. And it was a beautiful thing. She was totally not upset that I had lied all those years. She acknowledged that it was intelligent and strategic, said that if I had to listen to my friends who all told me I was crazy for living this double life and lying all the years um, and had admitted to her when she was younger, that I would have probably not been that great of a mother because, in fact, it probably would have influenced her um, at that young, impressionable age. So I very strategically waited until she was older, got involved with that, used my real name and thought, well, I have to tell her before she finds out from someone else naturally and chose to use my real name because I want to influence young women to realize that there are positive choices they can make in this industry and they don't have to just follow suit. Um, for the rest of my family, I've been very detached most of my life because I got pregnant at 14 and I didn't want to give rep for adoption off I went to the strip club so that I could be my own independent person and so you know family's been more friends over the years who I formed as, as family members rather than my direct family now there's one member of my family who is probably going to hear about this and I hope handle it well she's much older I love her deeply and she's always given me endless support um, but it's not uh, it's not an open conversation at the Thanksgiving dinner table because I don't mm. share um, holidays with the family and that's just because I don't believe in Santa Claus and Easter money and I don't really celebrate in the traditional manners about it
0: anything Chelsea what an incredible story thanks <laughs> thanks for sharing it we appreciate that we'll, we'll keep in touch
4: thank you for having me have a great afternoon
0: all right Chelsea thanks so much for the time much appreciated Chelsea uh, former stripper dancer at uh, Hamilton strip talking about the lifestyle um, which Wow I I never even thought of, of that aspect of it what a what, a, an, uh, what an incredible interview <laughs>